Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Happy belated Thanksgiving. I'm Aaron, and here with me, as usual, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Bonjour. We're excited today to be catching up with the film about cooking that our wonderful Patreon supporters chose for us to discuss in November. I've got to admit, Patrick, I was kind of hoping it would go this way, because I do love me some Pixar, and Remy is just the cutest little rat that you ever did see. Hopefully this rewatch, or I assume it's a rewatch for you, went as well as it did for me. But uh, no need to delay, really. This is a, a mini-sode. These are fun. We're just going to jump right in there. And we'll do that by first giving a spoiler warning. We are going to discuss Ratatouille in depth. Um, it's a Pixar movie, so you could probably guess the plot if you wanted to. You probably wouldn't have to try very hard. But hey, uh, if you haven't seen this one, go go seek it out. It's a, it's a good movie. It's a great, great Pixar movie. It's up there. You know, it's probably, I don't know. Where is it for you? A little teaser. Where is it for you in your Pixar rankings? For me? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, here's here's a spoiler for you. This is my first time watching it, well, actually. Well, dadgummit. Okay. So, but, and the thing is, I've owned this thing for almost 10 years. Um, It was actually, uh, somebody let me borrow it, and it's one of those times when someone lets you borrow something, and then you just happen to move to two or three different jobs, and you aren't able to get the movie back to that person. So, so you stole it. Sure. We'll call it that. <laughs> <laughs> but I never get around to actually watching it, and the Pixar love that I have just couldn't sway me to give it to anybody else because I hadn't seen it. And so when it came up on the uh, donor pick for this month, I was like, well, good deal. Now I have an actual reason to watch it other than it's Pixar and it should be amazing. And I wasn't disappointed at all. It's definitely up there in my top 10 of Pixar movies. And for surprisingly new reasons, it's not just the Pixar punch. It's not just the cute factor and the great voice cast. There's a lot of stuff that we'll talk about in the episode where it just continued to elevate itself. And it's one that I actually want to, I want to watch again with my son. Um, he wasn't able to watch it with me this time, but I think he'd really get a kick out of it. Oh yes. Yes, he will. Trust me. It was watching it. You know, it's like watching Remy. I think that's why kids love this one more than anything. It's because you just watch this cute little rat run around talking and controlling a human. I mean, how, how could you not love that? Um, it's top 10 or so for me too. It's, it's up there in the top tier. Uh, but yeah, so spoiler warning is given, and let's jump into our one more takeaways. And since you're a newbie, I'll let you kick us off. All right. I chose research for this one, and it doesn't surprise me that I use this word to describe a movie like this, because I feel like most Pixar films are going to invoke some kind of research into the world in which they are playing in to create that sense of detail, believability. And I use realism in air quotes because I know we're talking about animated features with inanimate objects most of the time. You have a talking rat, for goodness sake. But this movie isn't just subtle about it. It creates moments. There were numerous times that I found myself listening to the dialogue and watching the action and actually learning how to be a better cook. I don't think I'll ever look at testing uh, the freshness of bread the same way again by squeezing it that way. You know, I'm going to I'm going to be at Kroger squeezing bread and people are going to look at me weird. And I'm like, hey. This is how you do it, people. This is how you do it. But I love how meticulous Brad Bird and his his creative team got to make this feel like a genuine atmosphere of cookery, cooking and, I guess, general chefery. That's a word. If it's not, it is now. But 
at the same time, it, it reminded me a lot of the other movies that were on our list, Chef and Burnt in particular, where the emphasis was equally on the cooking aspect and the techniques of cooking in as much as it was the characters themselves. And so I definitely connected with that because of my love for those other two movies. Well, that's interesting. I like where you went with that. When you first did research, I was a little concerned. I was like, that's a little uh, science-y and a little kind this of... This isn't Ant-Man and the Wasp, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a little too um, serious for this movie. And But now, now I get it. I totally get it. Well, I'm going to be quick and short and to the point here. My one-word takeaway is yummy. And my son made fun of this because he said... Dad, isn't your one-word takeaway supposed to be how you feel about the movie? And I said, well, you know, it can be, kind of. And he goes, well, you don't feel yummy. And I was like, well, that's true, but it makes me yummy, or it makes me want yummy. And he just didn't like it at all and wanted me to come up with a different word, and I refused. So you get yummy, listeners. Um, and the reason that I go with yummy is because this film makes me hungry. It makes me very, very hungry every single time I watch it. And it's extremely hard right now because I'm keto which means no carbs. And I just had to watch an entire film uh, set in France with nothing but bread and pasta and delicious, delicious carbs. Patrick's eating carbs in front of me right now. He's holding it up in front of the camera to taunt me with his apple. So, yeah, thanks a lot, listeners. Thanks a lot. Um, Honestly, though, one thing that did pop out to me about the food and, and really where I'm going with this, Patrick, is the food. Um, just seeing the beautiful way that the food is depicted, the way the food is animated, um, it's kind of amazing to me that it would evoke that sense of hunger in me, the same way that something like Chef does. Um, that's one of the big things about that movie, and we're not getting to talk about it, so I'm going to go ahead and say, when I watch that movie, I need a Cuban sandwich. You know, like I can, I feel like I can taste him cooking a Cuban sandwich because it's so real on the screen, and I get that same sense from this but it's an animated movie which is pretty right. darn impressive and yeah you know it's brad bird so i guess i shouldn't be surprised no. um, and i've never had ratatouille and now i really want to try it <laughs> if it's keto maybe we can try it when i, I don't think it is i think i googled it one time because i watched this movie earlier this year and i think i googled okay. it and ah boo I know. well i could have a little of it you know like may, all in moderation it'd be worth maybe it a cup maybe, maybe a cup maybe a cup what's what's a cup between friends right it's probably a lot um okay <laughs> Well, let's jump in, not dump into this. Let's jump right in here and uh, go into this first topic. You wrote this down, so I'm going to let you take the lead and kind of explain okay. to me what you're, where you're headed with this. But you, you said something about how you think of Pixar as a sort of a mythological storytelling style. What do you mean yeah. by that? Pixar has always been, now that we have like this full gamut of movies to, to look at, I don't even know how many there are in the Pixar library. I think most people would tell you that Pixar movies as a whole are pretty timeless that you and I, we got a chance to do the Toy Story trilogy this year as part of our 100th episode Spectacular. And Toy Story was back in the early 90s, uh, which for us is a long time, you know, because, you know, we're older now. And, but it still holds up, not just with animated and all the all the technical aspects of it, but also with the story itself. And I think that that exists in a lot of stories where you can, you can take a Pixar movie, whether it came out last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, pop it in and get that sense of value from it from a storytelling standpoint. There's always a, not just a positive message, but a meaningful message, one that resonates both with kids, with kids and adults. And I think that it's one that's very approachable. It's a, it's a style that exists in a way where 
you don't have to feel like, oh, this is an older movie, so you may not get a lot of the references. I feel like there's a lot that makes a Pixar movie compact, so it doesn't feel like it's aged at all. And that's hard to do when it comes to that kind of stuff. When it comes to CGI, when it comes to voice acting, and I think that's one of the things that appeals to people about Pixar is not just that it hits a wide range of an audience, kids and adults, but because it stays current with its themes, with its values and with its messages. And I'm excited to know that whatever Pixar is going to punch, excuse me, punch that Pixar punch, whatever Pixar is going to come out with next, I know in 10 years, 15 years, I'm going to be able to go back to it and enjoy it just as much as I did today. So that's a brilliant brilliant observation because it stands in direct competition or contrast with what Disney tends to do or has done in recent years. Makes me think of something like Zootopia, which is very in the moment. It's all about inclusion and it's trying to speak to an issue that is current, that is trending in society at the moment culturally. And I don't think that's going to hold up as well. Now, it doesn't mean those stories aren't necessary, aren't needed, aren't worth being told, but you're right. There is something about Pixar's films, and I think it's because they always address characters at like this base human nature, uh, and they never take it to a place where it feels like they're trying to be preachy. It's just relating to characters on a screen, getting to know them subtly being pulled into this emotional connection with what's happening to them. And and they're really experts at doing that. And I, I love it. And I'm so glad it exists. And you're absolutely right that that is why I think that they stand the test of time because they don't look out into the world and go, Hmm, what's the big deal right now? What do we need to make a movie about? Ooh, let's make a movie about racism. They don't do that. Uh, and I think if they did do that, that wouldn't stand the test of time. The way that yeah, these do. For sure. It's, there's always an emotional thread through that too, which is something that's common among everybody. And if our podcast was made for a particular film studio, it would probably be Pixar because of the fact that emotion is at the heart of everything that they do. Because they, I believe because the creative teams know that's what people gravitate towards when it comes to storytelling. That's what they connect with is that emotion. How do we get emotionally connected to the audience? Well, Let's make our characters, I won't call them generic, but I'll call them everyman. So Woody and Buzz are toys, which we are not, but Woody and Buzz have a friendship, just like you and I have a friendship, and they have opposition on things sometimes, just like we do. And I wouldn't look to them as a template for how to have a friendship, but their friendship speaks to what friendship can look like in a bunch of people's lives, how People have opposition with one another and they disagree. And sometimes there's jealousy and sometimes there's envy. How do you deal with that? Well, let's, let's play that out through the story of these two inanimate objects, which I think is where, honestly, I think this is where Pixar really shines is when they use non humans to tell their stories because that takes even more of a step away from the reality of where they're at. Well, that's perfect because it ties into this question I had for you, which is, what do you think that Pixar gains by using a rat to tell this story? Like, what, what do you think Ratatouille in particular has that the same exact storyline, but not using a rat, using something else, some other character, another human or something? 
Why a rat? Well, if you, that's kind of a, <laughs> it's an open question because if you used another human, I could make an argument for why they use the rat. So if you said, let's just say for the sake of argument, why didn't they use another human? Well, in my opinion, it's because you're completely, you're creating a better level of separation for the message that's trying to be, that's trying to be conveyed, which is the, is this person or is this thing worthy of doing this grand activity? Does the rat have the ability? No, they're not asking that question. They're just asking, should a rat be able to cook? Should a rat have that kind of prowess and that kind should it have the opportunity? And so you're putting an obvious stereotype in this case, the fact that he's a rat. Yes. One thing, but the fact that he's a rat who is considered literally vermin to a restaurant in a position where he wants to do something amazing like cook. It's, it's one of the great storytelling devices, which is, which is using opposites to tell your story. And that's what Pixar is doing here is I think if you use anything other than a rat in a French restaurant, your, your message wouldn't be nearly as impactful as it is with the rat, you know, with Remy. And so I think not only is it fun to watch, but it also is more obvious in terms of the message that they're trying to convey. See, I thought it was just because the word rat is in Ratatouille and it made it really good. There's no animal in the word pizza or pasta. You know, and it could be that too. So that's <laughs> just whatever. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think there's definitely something to the sense of a rat being trash and the exact opposite of the chef, right? In the sense that the chef is cooking this high level of food. It's a, it's an elevated version of a meal and the rat eats the exact opposite of that, the lowest level of a meal, which is trash. And so here you have this character that is completely different than the normal characters that he would be growing up with or be a part of. And that plays into this a lot. Um, plus of course you get, you know, there, there's always the, the illustrated elements of it that matter. Like how do you get a character into his hat? He's got to be small. So it's got to be something that can control his hair and things like that. Um, and a rat makes sense. So I, I love that they chose a rat for this. I don't think. I've seen a talking rat movie other than I really like Fievel goes west or Fievel goes west. Um, American tale mm -hmm. is the original one. Hey, he's not a rat. He's a mouse, right? Yes. He's a mouse. Uh, but Templeton, but the rat a, from Charlotte's web Templeton. That's right. Yeah. He's kind of like mean, right? Um, he's, he's mischievous. He's not mean, but Which is what we think of when we think of a rat is mischievous. He's, he's like a, he's like a puck, you know, in Shakespeare's. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like that. Yeah. Well, I, I like the choice of Remy the rat a lot. And it's funny because rats don't have a lot of characteristics physically to make stand out. They're pretty bare bones, you know, pinkish nose, you know, beige-ish feet and a tail. And then that's it. Some fur. But they make Remy feel incredibly lifelike and... Mm -hmm. At the same time, very fuzzy to the point where, like, he's kind of cuddly instead of gross. <laughs> I think well, that's if, appealing. Yeah. Well, if you look at him against the 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 backdrop of his family, of his whole clan, he's a bright blue 
as opposed to the grays of most of the other rats. I don't know if that's, in t- I think it's intentional, but also to make him stand out, but also to indicate that when you eat good food, your body looks better, your skin looks better. And I think that eating uh, junk kind of makes you look that like kind of grayish. Junk. Yeah, like junk. And, and fat. Like, and then, <laughs> and fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one of the things that stood out to me in this time around is the book. Uh, it's called Anyone Can Cook by Chef Gusteau. So is that true or not? What do you think? Because at one point, critic Anton Ego says, absolutely not. And then Remy says, anyone can, but that doesn't mean anyone should. Where do you land on the title of this book, Anyone Can Cook? I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, and it's a, I think it's got double meaning. I think it is true that if I put ingredients in a bowl and I mix those ingredients up and then I pour those ingredients into a nine by 13 pan and I put them in the oven and I bake them for 45 minutes and I pull them out, I have cooked something. Anyone can cook. But if those ingredients were oil and um, old tire and some eggs and maybe a little bit of uh, curtain fabric and I think that that would probably not be considered cooking at that point. So in the literal sense, yes, anyone can, because we have the capability with our opposable thumbs to turn an oven on and to put things in it or to make a bowl of cereal. I mean, that's not cooking necessarily, but it's making something. At the same time, I think that there is an act to cooking well, something that I haven't necessarily gained complete respect for, even after enjoying these movies like chef and burnt because i still feel like if you're only eating five calories you should not be paying 55 dollars to eat five calories because the size you know, portion size needs to be bigger but the fact is cooking is an art and there's something pretty amazing about being able to pair things together which is what we see remy doing all the time we see him see here's a piece of cheese but what if we put a a, a strawberry with it oh that'll make an even better thing it'll make it more amazing and that's the act of really cooking is to bring flavors together to make something good taste great and in that regard no i don't think everybody can i think everybody can follow a recipe but adding your own special twist on that adding that one little manipulative like oh wow that's what makes you great yeah i would agree with that i you know that's me i'm the follow a recipe guy and my world falls apart in the kitchen if the recipe is doesn't work. So if I'm halfway into a recipe and it doesn't give me the exact measurement, I get anxiety because I don't know what I'm going to do. And I legitimately fear that my recipe is going to turn out less than edible because I don't have those steps to follow. Like This is definitely not my art form. It's not something that I can foresee or visualize in my head oh i should put this with that no never comes into play in my mind um and for that reason i have a strong respect for those that absolutely can do this so i love it as well um i think that the irony is that ego and remy and the title of the book like everybody's really kind of on the same page um and what that's what ego is kind of saying is what we're talking about. He's sa- he's he's saying he he's saying it in a mean way by saying no, not anyone can cook. But what he really means is 
no, not anyone can cook at the level of a five-star chef just because you read a book by a five-star chef. Right. Um, which is true, but it's the way he says it that comes off as like harsh. Right. But I think what, I think what Gusto does as a character, you know, in this ether, ether that he's in is that book is giving people access to maybe bring out greatness, which is something that the movie is trying to explore and trying to bring out with Remy. I mean, Remy is the, he's, he's not the guy. He's not the person, the thing, or whatever you want to call him that you would expect to have great cooking skills. He didn't need a book to do that, but. You have Linguini, what a great name, by the way, who I guess could be or should be the one that would take and learn recipes and become great. And he's being trained by others. You know, he is actually not doing the cooking himself. And so there's a little bit of irony that exists that I think what what Gusto is trying to invoke with that book, he's saying, look, here's a book, follow it. I'm not saying it's going to make you a great cook, but it'll make you at the very least be inspired to cook. And to get better at that. And I, and I think that's what the book is really centered on. Yep. I agree totally with that. Is there anything? So Remy really loves this book. I mean, in the beginning, he risks death to hold on to it, um, and keep it, you know, when he ev- evacuates that woman's house with the book and ends up riding the book down into the sewers. Uh, do you think that this is slightly a little bit of a, an unhealthy? passion and obsession that Remy has at this point or are there things that you would consider yourself maybe that important in your life with regards to your creative you know passions that you would hold on to with that much strength outside of my children and my family pets I would probably be grabbing my acoustic guitar if there was a fire Um, I think that these are not necessities these aren't things that help us live but these are things that are extensions of who we are and I think that, first of all, Remy uses it as a life raft, so there is a purpose to it. <laughs> and he's, that's by def- that's because it's that's yeah. not because he's <clears throat> thinking of it. I know he's not raft. thinking that. Yes, what I think though is it because it gives him access to to recipes and to be Cooking able to learn. Literally more. saves his life. Sorry, <laughs> loving to cook saves his life. The act of cooking does not. But I mean, what is what else does he have? Honestly, I mean. He can't get any lower. He's hanging out with rats that eat junk. So if he dies, it's not like his life's going to be lost or wow. or forgotten or whatever. No one's going to remember him because he's a rat, Patrick said. We're at the beginning of the movie. This is where <laughs> we're at, man. He has not made his mark on the world yet. But no, I think if this is all you have, if this is what you feel like is going to give your life something of meaning, if it's going to be the extension of who you are, then yeah, do what you can to save any part that's going to enhance that. Yeah, I don't know that I have anything that I would obsessively try to hang on to as far as stuff goes. Your podcast, Mike? Um, no, no, <laughs> that's an absolute not. Um, you know, and that's partially because that's not something that, like, that's not a, I can't, the book that I could use with other things at any point in my life. Like, I can't use a podcast, Mike, without other tools. So there would be no point in saving that. Um, but I do get it. I, I understand feeling so attached to something that it has such meaning and value to your life that you immediately want to grab it. 
Um, you know, there's been times in my life where I bet you I would have grabbed my, my La La Land Blu-ray on my way out of mine. And, and it's, it's not necessary. It's like, I can't find another one. Remy can find another cookbook. Sure. Um, but to him, it's a major part of his existence and he wouldn't, life wouldn't be the same without it. And so he tries everything he can do to hang on to it, but it is definitely, it results in this little bit of an unhealthiness, I think throughout. And I think that's intentional. I think Pixar's wanting to show the messy side and, and Brad Bird wants you to see that, you know, there's a level of artist. There's a level of, of, you know, dedication that it takes to be the best. You you don't do it halfway. It's not cooking is not a part-time hobby for right. Remy. That's not how you become a four-star Michelin or four Michelin star chef, right? It's your life's goal. It's what you do. It's what you are 100% committed to becoming. Um, and we see that throughout with Remy, that it takes that for him to get there. Um, well, also, one of the things, Skinner. So, hilarious character. I found myself this time finding a little bit of empathy for him. And I wondered if you saw that as well. So, he's definitely played to us as a villain, of course. He's frequently trying to expose Linguini and he's considered an evil character in a sense that like he wants the restaurant for himself um, at all costs, no matter what. And he just wants to sell out and do the burrito thing. He doesn't really care anymore about the um, quality of the food, the artistic nature of it. He's all about that business. But on some level, him trying to expose Linguini as a fraud seems like maybe there's a little bit right to that. Did you feel that way? Yeah, he's definitely a sympathetic villain. At no point did I want him to win. But I get I get his plight. I get the fact that he wants to see the fruit of his labor. Whether that labor is very ambitious or not remains to be seen. I mean, when you're selling out to being a frozen food connoisseur or whatever it is. And I, I, I think for me, the fact that he's exploiting the, the name of Gusto for his own personal gain. I think that's where the sympathy ends because he doesn't care about the restaurant and being a chef. Again, one of the things that I learned, you know, pointing out what a chef is versus the sous chef and the, a soup, to deer or soup to, you know, whatever it was. When you, when you have somebody like him who is the head chef, there's a level of respect that goes to that. And he doesn't seem to articulate that in a way that makes me feel like I should respect him. He's just more of exploitative than anything else. And so for me, he doesn't feel very sympathetic, at least as you get to know him and you see what his real motives are. He's not, he's a hard chef to work with, but most chefs are because they have a certain way that they want to be. The problem is his way isn't really to make the restaurant better. It's to make the name Gusto better so he can sell more crappy food. Yeah. Yeah. It's not all in service of creating great food. It's in service of doing those things on his terms. It has to be on his terms. And that's a big difference. Um, I just, I don't know. I felt at times I, I saw him like trying very hard to expose Remy as being this puppeteer underneath the the hood or the hell you know the hat of linguini and i was like kind of rooting for him i was like man you're right like he, this dude is like completely lying to you and trying to fake the fact that he's this great chef like that's not okay either 
there's something wrong with that, you know, but I guess we are in fantasy land and it's not that natural for someone to let a rat, you know, direct their hair and help them cook. So it might not have gone over so well. And so I guess I can understand that, but, um, I like him. I like that. I like that he seems to have a little bit more to him layer wise than just a, a kind of a one note villain for me. Yeah. He definitely does. Yeah. Um, at one point, Remy's dad implies that maybe he's not a rat because he lives like a human. This is a pretty emotional scene. It's toward the end. Um, they've come back together at the restaurant and Remy and he are having a disagreement there. And he goes out and he shows him how the humans kill rats. Uh, this is pretty powerful, I thought, because his dad is just trying to protect Remy because that's what he knows. All he knows of humans is this is what they do to us. They try to kill us. There's no way and in no way, no world where his dad would ever have considered that, oh, Remy might have made friends with a human. Like, cause that's not a thing. So it makes sense that he reacts this way, but Remy refuses to believe that the future can't change. He's eternally optimistic and he ends up telling his dad, change is nature, dad, the part that we can influence. And it starts when we decide. But ultimately here, I think that there is some truth to both sides. And I don't think that anyone is necessarily in the wrong. And I sympathize there with his dad because I, I understand what it must be like to want to protect your child from failure or from death in this case um, could be the worst case scenario. But then on some level, you have to be willing to let them strike out on their own and take risks and pursue a passion that might be scary and trust them that they know what they're doing and they're making a decision that they're okay with and support them in doing it. So I really love this sequence and the way that it kind of plays out that father-son dynamic. Yeah, and I picked up on something really interesting, and it may have been in light of our Green Book discussion, because I think it's in the same scene, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when Remy runs away, he says, what are you, gonna, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to be a cook. And to me, that was significant, because up to this point, first of all, I agree with you. I think that that Remy's dad is in the right to say what he knows because that's the narrative that he's been given his whole life. That's the narrative that he knows. Remy has experienced what it's like to be with a human and being friends with the humans. But I think the importance that Remy is placing is on the act of cooking and being a cook, not being a human, not being a rat, but transcending both and being a cook. In a lot of ways, I feel like I don't want to call this direct ties to racism, but I feel like when you mutually understand somebody else's world, it's not that you're trying to become a rat or become a human to understand what it's like to be a human, but to find something that is common to both of you that you're passionate about, that you love, that you see value in. And I feel like that's where Remy connects with, um, with Linguini is not that, Hey, he's a human and I want to be more like a human. No, because he's got plenty of examples of humans that are not who he wants to be like. I mean, take the rest of the staff. The one guy, he changes his story about how he got thrown in jail every time he talks to someone. And so I think it's less about wanting to understand or be a human and more about really wanting to be a better cook. Because Linguini wants that too. 
everyone in that room, in that, in that kitchen wants to be a better cook and is hired because they're good cooks and they can be great cooks. And I think that this is a great picture of what it means to find that common ground and celebrate the one thing that links you all together. And so that scene with his dad has both truth and challenge to it because of the fact that he knows that's the world he, he's been living in. But change, being able to step outside of that and not be something else that you're not, but be something that you want to be, can help you find connection with others that share that same thing. Mm, well said. Well, my favorite thing about this film comes at the end. And since this is your first time seeing it, I'll be interested to hear kind of what your initial reaction was to this, uh, because I know it's coming. I mean, I've heard it multiple times and I've referenced it myself ever since this film came out. Um, but it, it hits particularly hard now, uh, based on what we do here on the podcast. So it's at the end after Anton has experienced this incredible moment where the Ratatouille transports him back to his childhood. Um, would have been a contender for my connecting point, by the way, just the way that it's visually shown to us, him having that remembrance of that time. He's writing about the ratatouille, the meal that he's been served, and he says this. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends. Last night I experienced something new. An extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, Anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist. But a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusto's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gusto's soon, hungry for more. All right, so I think that this take on criticism in general is just incredible. It's one of the best things I've ever heard about it um, in that first section where he's talking about in many ways the work of a critic being easy all the way up to the point where he just says the new needs friends I, I love it I think it really hits home and sums up what it's like to be a critic what it should be like for us to be a critic um, and 
the dangers of, like he says, thriving on negative criticism and how easy it is to fall into that trap. That's the very thing that you and I have set out to attempt to try to avoid um, where possible and as much as we can. So how did this land for you? And did you agree with Anton Ego in this moment? Yeah, I agree with him in parts. I think that there is something very risky when you support something that's new, something that hasn't necessarily been given the once over by the masses in terms of film criticism or a book or food. You're not jumping on the bandwagon with positive or negative energy. You're saying, hey, this is something that needs to be tried out because then the the pressure comes on you as the critic because you're the voice speaking into the audience that's hearing it for the first time. But ideally, criticism should be from a place of construction. In design and in the world that I live in, constructive criticism is a phrase that we use quite a bit, being able to be very terse with people, but being able to offer up solutions, suggestions, um, pathways to get a, a piece of art better. If you love something, you should be able to pick out its flaws, admit what isn't good about it, and strive to eventually have it improved. You can't do that with movies, obviously, because movies are one and done, you know, unless you do a remake, which whatever, you know, I don't know if we want that necessarily. The issue, though, particularly with film criticism, it isn't necessarily the, the critic's fault, because the fact is criticism, while it works best when it strives to improve, that's not the outlet that a movie critic can have. The, the movie critic goes in, they have that give us your reaction and why we should see it or shouldn't see it coming out of it. I mean, you're, you and Don are, are great examples of when you write a written review, you're giving your take. You're not necessarily saying you should see it or not, but giving it a star rating is sort of hinting at that. But that's not your job. That's not the job of a movie critic. The, the movie critic is not one who is saying, okay, here's how I would make it better. One, because you don't want to get spoilery necessarily, but because it's not really, it's, that's not your job. And so when I think about film criticism in particular, but ge in general criticism, I think that we need to understand that criticism from one source is not necessarily criticism from all sources. And one of the healthy habits that I've seen from a lot of people is they read who they normally agree with consistently because they want to find some perspective on whether or not they should see a movie. I think it's ideally a place where you're putting something behind it and saying, this is what I would do better. or Here's why I think it could be better, but that's not the outlet for, for film criticism. It's not the outlet for any like pop criticism of food or movies or books or whatever. But I think from the, from the heart, what he's saying is that it's very risky to support something new because it could easily be as picked apart as it could be celebrated. And to be a pioneer of that, I think takes a lot of risk. And that, that to me is a celebration from, from a world of being a critic is being able to honestly say, this is wonderful. And this is why. And I hope that as many people get to experience this as I do, but I understand if you don't. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah, it's, I agree. And it's, I think, probably a meta commentary on film criticism. I, don't, I can't imagine that Brad Bird has this in here knowing. I mean, you have to know that that's what it's going to get taken as. 
when you write this in there. I mean, yes, we're talking about food criticism in the context of the story, but that whole section is written without qualifiers until later on in the very end of it, where he actually starts to tie it to considering criticizing the meal itself. And I think that's intentional uh, so that we can kind of take it out into pieces and be like, hey, we apply this to film criticism or music criticism or whatever the case may be. Um, I'm really always kind of stricken by the part where he says, the bitter truth we must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. And I often wish I could just copy and paste that and run around on Twitter hitting reply to people <laughs> every time I see somebody like jumping on the bandwagon to bash uh, movies and, and just completely trash things on a repetitive level. Um, because, you know, what's the point, right? Uh, but I, I do. I love this so much. And I think Anton Ego, though he is present in the very beginning of the film and doesn't really show up again until the very end of the film, has a really cool arc and comes to this realization through what Remy and Linguini bring him um, because it it connects with him and it reminds me of our show. And that's why that moment is probably would be my connecting point of him transporting back to his childhood when he eats that ratatouille, because that is the essence of a connecting point yep. that we do. Like, that is exactly what it, the point of it is, is what's that moment that makes you stop and reflect and kind of go somewhere else in your head for a second, emotionally speaking. And I love it. I think this is a, an awesome visualization of what we try to do. And um, yeah, if this, I, I just can't, I can't think of a better place for it to be. And I also love this line in here where he says, not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. And that ties into that whole, can anyone cook conversation yeah. that we had earlier? Yeah. Um, it, it's not a matter of your upbringing and your past. It's a matter of a natural talent and B a whole lot of dedication and sure. a whole lot of consistency. Sure. <laughs> um, just like it is. If you want to, Get yourself, uh, become a YouTube star, right? You don't, you don't, you may have the, all the talent in the world, but if you put out one video once every two months, no one cares. No one's going to see that talent. Uh, no one's going to be able to build on that talent. So you need both of those elements together. Well, was there anything else that stuck out to you about Ratatouille here in your first viewing you wanted to cover? Or? Nope. I think that's it. Cool. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I certainly love it every time I get to rewatch it. And like I said, I was really glad that we got to do this one. So again, we both say thank you, listeners, for choosing it. Uh, December's donor pick voting is underway right now. Patrick, that's good. Um, there's a few days left. That's open until December 10th. So depending on when you're listening to this episode, if you're interested in helping us choose what that December movie we cover is, you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash feel and film and uh, sign up for one of the award levels there. The tiers, uh, they start at $1 a month. And with that one, you do get a vote and you can participate in choosing which Christmas movie we'll be covering in December. Uh, if you'd like to contact me and talk further online, you can do that always in our Facebook group, which we'd love to suggest that you come be a part of. You can find links to that in the show notes on the website or obviously just searching on Facebook. And you can also talk to me on Twitter at Feelin' Film. 
I'll be happy to engage with you there. What about you, Patrick? Well, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to at me if you want to uh, enjoy conversation with me. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Next up is a plethora of episodes that we're going to be finishing out the year with, beginning with the Mary Poppins. Yeah. I don't know if I did that right. <laughs> Mary Poppins will be coming up this uh, this next episode, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll be covering Mary Poppins Return. So a plurality of Mary Poppins coming your way, along with a couple of superhero movies that you may or may not have heard of. And, uh, you know, so we're excited about everything that we're doing to finish out the year. All right, well, this has been fun. We will be back in a few days with that Mary Poppins episode. And until then, listeners, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.